discovery is said to be an accident meeting a prepared mind. But every story behind a discovery is different. Perhaps the idea is conceived in a light bulb moment or a brainstorming session or captured in scribblings on the back of a napkin. Here, we introduce you to scientific pioneers taking you beyond their publication and into Innovation Corner to hear the untold stories behind their discoveries. This podcast is brought to you by Biotechni, and I'm your host, Alex Maloney. Until recently, the textbook answer to how drugs work would likely describe drug-like compounds binding to a protein target and affecting the function that implicates that protein in a disease. Now, you should expect to see not just proteins, but RNA in that description, thanks to the work of our guest today, Professor Matthew Disney. Matt is based at the University of Florida Scripps Institute and has dedicated his career to demonstrating RNA can be targeted by small molecules, laying some solid foundations for others to adopt this concept. Diseases and protein targets that have been considered quote-unquote undruggable have now had a spotlight shone on structured RNA targets with pockets capable of selectively binding small molecules. Matt has published on such RNA targets for diseases including Alzheimer's, ALS, Huntington's, Parkinson's, and muscular dystrophies, among others. And what if binding alone doesn't lead to the desired output, as can often be the case? Well, Matt's thought up a solution to that one too, and it's called the Ribotac. This is a heterobifunctional compound, where one end binds the target RNA, and the other end recruits a nuclease to degrade the RNA. You're going to be hearing a lot more about this technology in the next few years as others are jumping on the bandwagon. In this podcast, Matt gives an incredibly honest insight into the conflictions and challenges he's faced during his career. This is a story filled with eureka moments, perseverance, and above all else, Matt's overarching goal to do good in the world. Talking to Matt, it still feels like this is just the beginning and only now are we at the part where real human lives will benefit from his discoveries. I hope you enjoy this podcast. So without any further ado, welcome to Back of the Napkin. Matt Disney, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, Alex. Thank you. I have been super excited to have you on this show. You have been the headline act. A lot of the RNA conferences that I have been uh, attending recently. So it's a real pleasure to have you here today. Okay, so this is a podcast where we introduce the listeners to scientific pioneers. So as with all good stories, we'll start from the beginning. How did you get into science? Um, yeah, I'm from a, a pretty large family. I have six brothers and sisters. Uh, I grew up in Baltimore, which, you know, it's my favorite place on earth. Don't judge me based on that. It's just where I'm from. And, um, you know, I, I was always interested in working hard. <laughs> that was, that was, uh, I think the biggest example from my dad, my dad worked very hard for the family. And so, um, and I was always interested in, in science, right? So I remember when I was a young kid, um, you know, I got a telescope. I, I uh, being from Baltimore, my favorite celestial object was the Crab Nebula. Baltimore is very famous for blue crabs that come from the Chesapeake Bay. 
And so I used to, you know, look in the stars and wonder um, what those things are made of. I thought it was remarkable that if, if an object is, you know, three billion light years away, the light that's touching our eyes is three billion years old. Um, and so uh, that always sort of the, the my desire to want to understand things, to learn about science. And I think the example from my dad uh, drew me to wanting to do science. I, you know, not surprisingly, given that I'm from Baltimore and from a large family, I grew up very Catholic. <laughs> and so there was always, um, you know, you're, you're, you're told that when you grow up in that environment, you have to find your vocation, right? What you were, you know, on this earth to do. And I found that, that in, in terms of other than being a husband and a dad is doing science. So I think in, in some sense, um, it was, it was a thing that I was naturally drawn to for, for all of those reasons. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So six brothers and sisters. Wow. So there must've been some competition there, right? Uh, interesting. I have, so there's a gap of six years, seven years between me and my older brother, and then three years with me and my younger brother. So, um, I think there, I don't, I never really thought that I competed with my brothers and sisters, actually. <laughs> um, it's interesting you say that, but I've been very competitive in my life. <laughs> so I have, when I, I, I played a lot of sports, there was a, I was very competitive when I played sports. So I actually, um, you know, playing baseball and soccer and basketball and tennis, I was very competitive growing up, but just not with my siblings. Um, yeah. They might say something different. <laughs> they might say the complete opposite. They might say that Matt was, uh, was pretty competitive. And actually there's, it's, Alex, it's funny. I'm thinking about my other, my, my brother who's directly older than me, Michael. I remember one time we were, we were growing, we were in the house and they were looking for something. I don't remember what the object they were looking for. And, uh, he was telling my mother, he's like, Oh, I can't, you can't, you can't find this. Matt won't be able to find it. And then I found it. And when I came back, he said, Oh, the, best way to get Matthew to do something is to tell him he cannot do it. <laughs> right. And so, um, I think that's, I think my, my, my brother, Michael knows me better than at that time I knew myself. And so, um, he was using this to his advantage cause I don't think he wanted to find what my mother was asking him to find. He wanted me to do it. Yeah. And so, uh, he used my, uh, you know, desire to, do things that people told me I couldn't do it. And then I would be, I found what, what my mom was looking for. So, um, it's interesting because as the years gone have gone by, um, that's a very, you know, small slice in time, which wouldn't have been, I don't think wouldn't have been necessarily memorable, but that actually, that is, that, that stuck with me because I think Mike, uh, a cool memory. Yeah. yeah. Mike knew me better <laughs> than I probably knew myself. Okay, cool. So let's, um, then start with your scientific career. So you head off to do your undergrad at, um, Maryland. Is that right? Yeah. I went at the university of Maryland. 
Yep, as an undergrad. Uh-huh. Um, what did you major in? Well, I was sort of a chemistry, chemical engineering major. Uh-huh. And so um, it, it's very funny. So I remember um, visiting colleges, which included the Naval Academy, things like that. My dad was in the military for very, very long, like multiple decades, might have been over 40 years. He was in the U.S. Navy from active duty for 10, but then reserves for the other amount of time. And so I remember when I visited Maryland, I was like, this is where I want to go. And um, I went there. Um, I think that I've been very lucky in, in many aspects of my life. I think having the opportunity to go to Maryland was one of the luckier things that I had. Um, I, I, uh, the first few years I didn't have to study because all the coursework that I had, and I went to Catholic school in my high school was kind of redundant for literally the first two years. And then when I was there, I, my sophomore, uh, organic two class was taught by a guy named Jeff Davis and Jeff. Um, I remember at the end of that, that year, um, there was an advertisement. If you were, you know, chemistry, chemical engineering major, they said, oh, you should probably do research. And so I remember asking Jeff um, if I could do research with him because he was a very un- unassuming guy. And uh, he let me he let me do research. And then at the end of the school year, because it was the summer and then we were going to go do research, I asked him um, what I should study. And he gave me a uh, biochemistry textbook, a Stryer biochemistry textbook that I still have on my shelf. Yeah. Maybe I stole this from Jeff and I never gave, maybe I should return it to him. Yeah, you're going to get a message from him now asking for it back. <laughs> this is the textbook. So it's this Stryer, Stryer textbook. Um, and I did research with Jeff. And so that was really uh, pretty, pretty remarkable. So um, that in some sense, when uh, I was able to do work in a lab to m- make things, understand uh, how to build molecules, understand how things work. That really opened my eyes. And Jeff was, Jeff was a, frankly, still is a really important part of my life. I talked to I talked to Jeff every once in a while. I send him a an email. Uh, he likes the Boston Red Sox, which is a baseball team, and I like the Orioles that are from Baltimore. So, you know, every opening day we predict. You know, I email him about the Orioles are going to be better than the Red Sox, which has not happened until recently. And this year, I predict the Orioles will be much better. And what about when they play each other? Oh, I, I try not to talk to him that much. <laughs> they, they actually play each other quite often. It's like, you know, there's 162 games in a baseball season. And so it's like third. there's an unbalanced schedule. So they're in the same division. So they play many times. But yeah. Um, yeah. So that was I, I, I have to say. I liked many things about Jeff. I liked that I could talk sports with him. Right. So there was a, we bonded over that. Um, I worked hard in lab. And so he saw me there on the weekends doing reactions. And so that was, you know, when I worked there and I didn't really have a lot of supervision. Right. Which was, which was good. So it allowed me to sort of discover and tinker with things myself. And I thought that was really important. Yep. Yeah. Okay, so then the next chapter, you decide you want to do a PhD and you head to the University of Rochester right? Um, in Doug Turner's lab. So yeah, yeah tell me about this, because this seems to be a pretty pivotal moment in your, in your scientific journey as well. 
Yeah. So when I was with Jeff, we were studying isoguanazine, which is a, it's a, it's a modified RNA base. And we were studying how it self-assembled against metals in like chloroform. So I was doing a bunch of NMR experiments to track this. Um, and I got interested in hydrogen bonds and how things assemble. Um, and I, th I thought at that point, it was like, oh, it'd be pretty cool to figure out how big RNAs fold, not just the base and chloroform, but how do large RNAs fold in water? And Doug is like the black belt of that. And so, um, you know, I, I went on a visit there. I talked to Doug. Doug's a, a very special human being at all aspects. And so I remember visiting Rochester. Actually, my dad drove the car with me on the visitation. And I talked to Doug and I was like, well, I'm just going to work with this guy. And that was it. I didn't, I think, I think when the, when the glove fits with things with me, I just make a decision and go with it. Maryland and Doug and, and Doug, when I was with the, in Doug's lab, that was a pretty, pretty special time. In Jeff's lab, I, I was a little dis doing discovery by myself, uh -huh. but in Doug's lab, he had a really very good collection of, of, of people. Uh, Mark Burkhard, I'm going to miss these, miss the names, Dave Matthews, Susan Schroeder, Steve Testa, Jessica, my current wife was a graduate student with Doug. And so that was a really formative time where, you know, we learned from Doug because um, he's a very exacting scientist. And then we learned from the other people in lab. Um, and Doug, Doug's very, Doug is a very non-assuming genius of a man. Um, and so Doug would, the thing that I, okay. So Alex, you're asking very simple and very profound question. This is the thing that I, I remember about Doug. Doug, or, and I still talk to Doug all the time. Well, once a month or something, I check in with Doug. Doug was the first person in my life that I ever met that loved his job. Like loved his job. He would laugh. And so Doug has a, has a very infectious laugh. So infectious that I recorded it at Dave Matthews wedding, Dave Matthews, not the band player, but the RNA biophysical faculty member at Rochester. Yeah. And we record on a site. So we recorded it and put it on Doug's website. So you can click on Doug and, and you can hear his laugh. And so, um, that was really that I remember, I remember I'm like, I used to ask myself, what is wrong with him? He's so happy about doing his job. Isn't, isn't your job supposed to be, um, isn't your job supposed to be, are you supposed to be miserable? Cause you have to work. <laughs> and, um, God, that was really profound that he could be happy doing this. And he really valued, he values, I is like, I don't want to use past tense here. Doug like values you as a person. And so Doug would get excited about data and learning new things. Yeah. And like, that was really Oh, it was like profound. And then I look back on it. Doug was not in his office all the time. Like I'm in my office all the time. Doug would be at home working and then he would come into lab. And I remember when he would come into lab, like people would be like, I want to talk to Doug. I want to show him a result. Sometimes I think if I go in my lab, the kids are like, Matt's here. I don't, he's going to be a pain in my butt. So anyway, so um, yeah, I, I, and then you know, with Doug, I mean, it was a people in lab. And then we interacted with Michael Zucker, who's a mathematician. And Michael would come 
Doug, I think, was is the key person, in my opinion, for why we can predict RNA structure. So Doug toiled away to make these energy rules, which the lab did painstakingly. So it's very painstaking. Like, not only what's the energy of a hydrogen bond, which is my favorite favorite thing, right, is, is hydrogen bonding energies. Why? I always ask kids that come in the lab and intern, I ask them what their favorite molecule is. And no matter what they say, if it's not water, I tell them they're wrong. <laughs> because I want to say, well, if you put a Coca-Cola in a freezer, why does it explode? Yeah. It's hydrogen bonds, right? So they're very strong. Um, so Doug, Doug and the group painstakingly got the energy rules for RNA folding. And Michael Zucker, who was a faculty member at Washington University in St. Louis, but then at Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute, Institute near Albany, Michael was a mathematician that could you know, predict RNA structure. And so Doug had the energy rule data, Michael had the software, and then we would figure out ways to predict RNA structure. And I love, so Michael's, Michael's a very interesting person. He's a, just a genius. Uh, Michael would come and visit. And it was always like in the summer, he would spend a week there. And it was just fun to talk to Michael yeah, and, and work with Doug. And then from there, you know, me and Dave Matthews and I, which Dave is the algorithm guy with, with Doug and Michael so there was an idea that, you know, the, the Turner Lab and the Zucker had, which is, in retrospect, probably a small part of my PhD thesis, but probably the part that had the biggest impact was, could we map RNA structure with chemical modification reagents in cells, figure out what the bases were paired and unpaired, and then could that be developed into an algorithm to predict RNA structure? And so, yeah, that, that was the last thing that I did as a PhD. It was a collaboration with Dave. Dave wrote the software figured out how to treat that that mapping and then you know you could predict predict rna structure i thought i thought wow this is really cool um and then it sort of came full circle we're studying a base folding against a metal to as an undergrad that would interested to figure out how an rna folds in cells by using reactivity maps and prediction that's pretty cool yeah yeah okay so this seems pretty foundational then in your in your career um, but after the PhD, you moved over to, to Europe, right? You came to Switzerland. Yeah. So look, at the end of Doug's, the graduate time, I was like, oh, it'd be pretty cool to leverage the ability to predict RNA structure to make small molecules that target RNA. And I thought, well, well, well Matt, you need to learn how to better make molecules. <laughs> I did, uh, I was a postdoc. I wasn't a postdoc for very long, maybe a year and a half. I don't, I don't know the exact time, but I was a postdoc with Peter Seberger's lab. I was at MIT for six months and then the lab moved to Eteja in Switzerland. And so there I was making, not doing really sophisticated chemical synthesis like people did in Peter's lab, but there I was making more molecules. I was getting experience in doing that. And then I helped build carbohydrate microarray technology, uh, where we put sugars on chips and you could use that to bind protein and high throughput, bind, um, you know, cells, et cetera. So yeah, that was, that was sort of, we were doing high throughput analysis. That was really good. It was very interesting to go to Europe. Um, that was a cool experience, which was unanticipated. So 
Yeah, Switzerland, super, super nice place. Probably not representative of the whole of Europe. I think it's, um, you know, it stands out in its own right. Um, but yeah, superb place. Yep. So then you head back over to the US to start your independent career. So this is where you kind of, I guess, knuckle down to decide what, what you're going to work on. So talk, talk me through this. Yeah, well, I had a plan at graduate school that I was going to develop methods to target RNA with small molecules. And I wanted to do it from genome sequence. I mean, there were two major things that came out when I was a graduate student. One was the draft genome of the human, the draft sequence of the human genome. And the other was the structure of the ribosome. And so well, I thought, meh, there's got to be a lot more RNA folding that's dictating all this biology. Wouldn't it be nice to have an, a, a scalable approach to take genome sequence, leverage what I learned from Doug to figure out how those RNAs fold and then stick a small molecule in these RNAs to affect their function? That's all I wanted to work on. So, I mean, this, this, is, a, this is a huge idea, right? Like no one was, was doing this or showing that this was possible. So Pe people, were tar people had targeted the ribosome with streptomycin. People had targeted HIV tatar RNA. Um, but outside of that, it was, there was not a lot of activity. You know, I, I was reading an article the other day. Um, the, the Kevin Weeks was in there and he, there was a quote from him that I thought was amazing. He said, uh, the RNA targeting small molecule field exists in significant part because uh, you have pretty much convinced everybody that targeting RNA is sensible. Uh, and at one point you were keeping it alive almost single-handedly. Like that's, um, that's a pretty cool, cool thing to now maybe look back and say, well, you know, look where we've got. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I think that was in a CNE news article. That's right. Yeah. And that, that really meant a lot to me that Kevin would say that. So I wrote him an email thanking him for that. Um, I, I, I like to hear that other people would say that, but we're just trying to do the best we can once putting one foot in front of the other. So let's maybe kind of talk through the journey then maybe in, in the, in the later stages, because, you know, now I really struggle to keep up because you are producing so many fantastic quality papers that are just, you know, you, you can't almost believe that, you know, the targets that you're pulling out and showing that you can target these RNAs with small molecules and have, you know, a real, um, you know, significant effect. So um, maybe we could touch on some of the points that have been kind of pivotal in getting to this point. Now, we've already spoke kind of a bit about the work you did in Doug Turner's lab. Um, so, yeah, let's kind of walk through this journey a little more. Yeah, I started faculty position at SUNY Buffalo, and I, I took Hirosuga's lab space. So peptidream, um, you know, macrocyclic peptide evolution. So, so my proposal was to basically develop a library versus library selection to figure out what are the RNA folds that bind small molecules and then leverage what I learned in Doug and find them in the human genome, right? And so pivotal moment is we developed a microarray technology to do basically on chip to select RNA structures that bind to small molecules that we spot on a chip. And Hiro was in Japan. He came back one time. And I like I, I love Hiro very much, right? He's one of my uh, He's someone I respect highly. So Hiro walked in the lab. I think it was the day when uh, he had his son going to daycare and the daycare called me and said, oh, Professor Suga. I'm like, I'm not Professor Suga. Your son is crying. So I ran to go tell Hiro he had to help his son. And, and after that, he came back. Oh, Matt, what's going on in lab? And I showed him the first chip where we could select 
um, I remember this day, it's this clear as day in the fume hood where we could do library versus library selection. We could take a library of small molecules and select what RNA structures they bind to. And so that was a eureka moment because I was in the lab doing that. And the second eureka moment is when we decoded the binders for uh, a version uh, for one compound. And I did some rudimentary calculation by an approach that we call now Inforna, which is basically taking that data on the RNA structures with RNA structure prediction to find partners. We found a ligand that bound to an RNA that causes myotonic dystrophy type two. So I was like, oh, this, this, is, this is going very rapidly from a basic science question, namely what RNAs bind small molecules to, wow, this data might have a use to help a human being other than me getting my NIH grant funded. And so we, we were excited by this and we published a compound that could bind this RNA structure with high affinity and specificity. And then that, so I, I tell people, ask me, well, Matt, why were you working in RNA repeat expansions? How did you find it? We didn't find it. It found us. The selection experiment at the beginning told us to work in this area. And I, I was very happy with that because it was a rare disease. Um, you know, my niece has a rare disease. Uh, Michael's oldest daughter, Caitlin. Uh, so I, I thought, whoa, this is like, I, I need to be working on this. Yeah, yeah. So there's this slide that you show in a lot of the talks you give that illustrates kind of the size of RNA as a target. And it's the one where you show kind of the, the proteome, how much of the proteome is drugged, uh, and then the rest kind of quote unquote undruggable. And then where that sits relative to the whole human genome, that's the kind of slide I see that really hits home and kind of says, wow, there's, there's a lot that can be done here. Yeah. So what, what we did is we, we scaled in Forna to all those targets. So we tried to figure out if there was more than just myotonic dystrophy two RNA that we can target. And so we've been able to advance that platform and get binders against different repeat expansions, non-coding RNAs, coding RNAs, uh, figure out new ways to affect splicing by detecting RNA structures that can be bound by ligands that have regulatory functions to affect splicing, by binding to messenger RNAs and affect translation of that specific message. Yeah, there's a lot, there's a lot. The kid the kids in lab, the, the people in lab have done, done they've done a lot of work on on doing this. What what has ha had me be most happy with that has not been having a molecule that binds an RNA. I it's been having a molecule that binds an RNA it affects something in cells and then being able to mechanistically track how that thing works. That to me has been really, you know, really uh, satisfying for the kids because it, for the students in lab, I'm, that, that to me, um, that's really where it's at. You want them to be able to find something that binds and then figure out how these things work. That, that to me, get, that's really exciting. Yeah. So, Kind of speaking about in, in fauna, then um, this seems to be really pivotal in in how you start out with a target. Is so maybe you can kind of tell me a little bit more about how it works because my kind of understanding is the moment is that you input some information into that. That's the RNA sequence, some uh, structural information, and then it tells you, okay, here's a um, a loop here or a bulge there. Uh, why don't you try these 
these molecules. Is that is that kind of how it works? Yeah. So we published it's a Nature Chemical Biology paper in 2014, which is at scale. Where what we did is we can batch fold in that paper all microRNA precursors, and so these are small RNAs that have easily discernible and pretty accurate folding patterns. And so we can literally take segments of the human genome, batch fold it, and then compare that to the binders that we have in a database. And then we spit out this ligand binds this target, this ligand binds these 10 targets. You know, it can tell you not just what binds, but what's specific. And then another thing on top of that, that, that we can do, which is probably going to relate to what you're going to ask me later, is we found that a lot of these interactions that bind a target are not bioactive by themselves, but a subset are. And so in that iteration, and for the you know following, say, three or four years, we were really focused on exclusively, can we detect ligands that bind to a site where it will be functional? And the function can be, does it inhibit translation of an RNA? Does it affect the processing of a non-coding RNA, which can have an effect of increasing the amount of a protein, whole bunch of stuff like that. So, so you can, you can up and we're, we've been rewriting Inforna for a long time. COVID has like everyone else is sort of, we've had to adjust to that where now we can take, you know, the whole human genome batch fold it and then figure out ligands that bind and then do the selectivity on not just a segment of the the human transcriptome, but the whole, you know, the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you've got kind of these RNA targets now relevant to uh, myotonic dystrophies, cancers, Parkinson's disease, uh, ALS, to name a few. I, I wanted to touch on something you said in a, uh, a talk you gave, I think it was in about 2019 at uh, Scripps in California. Um, and it was a question you got at the end that kind of, so one, it hit, it hit kind of home for me as well. It's something quite closely related, but uh, you were asked what work you were doing in Alzheimer's disease. Um, and your response was, yeah, we're, we're working hard on this. Um, and you mentioned the passing of your, your mother to this, um, to this disease. But the, the thing you said kind of after this was um, something that kind of really, uh, amazing and inspired me was that you have her cerebellum um, cryopreserved so you can sequence her genome, figure out what the targets are and, you know, try and target this disease. Like that is the most uniquely inspiring thing I think I've, I've ever heard. Yeah. <laughs> so my, my grandmother passed away last year um, relating to, to Alzheimer's and um, she, whilst she was still compost mentis, decided to donate her body to medical research as well. So, um, yeah, I kind of remain really hopeful here. It's mom, right? So what are you going to do? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I think uh, that was pretty heavy time. Um, and and uh, yeah, I, I think, but I'm not unique right? Everybody has to go through this stuff. And so I've, I've always thought that right now, I don't know that I could do anything to affect it positively or even understand if I would have, you know, got all the data for that, figure out what are the targets or what's the cause of this. But my hope is that, um, you know, in the future, science changes all the time. Uh, I always viewed this as from the eyes of my, when that, when, when my mother died, it was very, very, uh, difficult situation, obviously. Um, I wouldn't have got through it without my brothers and sisters. Yeah. But I always thought of that, thought of it 
from the eyes of my nieces and nephews. So they're seeing their grandmother. They don't know what's going on. And I, and I, and I thought, well, if I was in their situation, I look at science now and what I do. And so Alex, think about 20 years ago, 20 years ago, we just sequenced the human genome 2001. Like, look at what we're doing now. So I thought, I thought from their perspective and from my, from my siblings perspective that I wouldn't be doing honoring her or what I do without trying to be active to figure out things, which it might not have an impact now, but it could later on. So that's, that's the thinking that went into that. Knowing that it's probably a, a long shot now, but it might not be 20 years from now. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk then about expansion therapeutics. So you founded this company in 2016 and was it was the thinking here like look we've really got something here we need to start thinking how we can turn these into to therapeutics was was that how this happened okay so i'm the guy of low expectations which many of you listening to this might think what are you talking about i never sought to start a company people came to me so we had advent ventures talk to me well a lot of people talked to me about starting a company. I didn't start all the companies that I could have. Many, I think, incubated out of the idea that we had in the lab. Um, and so what, it, what happened with expansion is I had, I had a lot. Actually, that got founded. Um, there was a lot going on in my life at that time. Actually, right before my mother passed away, my father passed away, like within four to six weeks of, of each other. So it was a very complicated time in my life. And during that, I had many people ask me to start a company. And um, it was just hard for me to focus on that, given everything that was going on at the time. And what gave me pause, I think, is that one is I wanted to take whatever gifts that I had or whatever work that the lab was doing and be able to help people. So I wanted to be able to do that. The second thing is that I was not educated about biotech companies. And so when I had people talking to me about it, I would always in my head think this is too good to be true. Or this is they're they're, you know, they're talking to you, oh, we're going to found a company and we're going to make X millions of dollars. And that, that got me very uncomfortable. <laughs> Because I'm not in this for money, and I would worry that I would talk to the VCs, and they would want to do something to make money. I I wanted to make a drug. Uh, okay, so th this idea then about companies who have started now that are targeting um, RNA with small molecules. There's a really interesting podcast I listened to with uh, Jennifer Petter, who of course has started Arrakis Therapeutics now, and she attributes kind of her getting into this area as to a, uh, a talk she heard at a Gordon conference from yourself in 2015. Uh, and then she was inspired and a Kevin Weeks as well. Uh, she was then inspired to, to start Arrakis Therapeutics and see kind of exactly as we were just talking about how you can make these small molecules more, more drug-like. So, you know, it's really interesting to see how kind of the work you're doing is inspiring, you know, others to go out and, and operate in this space. So let's get on to another huge thrust then of your work, which is Ribotax. 
So you will forever now be synonymous with the term Rivatax in the same way that uh, Craig Cruz and Ray Deshays are with with Protax. So um, for listeners who maybe aren't familiar with what a Rivatax is, could you could you tell us a bit about these? Yeah, it's a heterobifunctional compound where one end binds to an RNA and the other end binds to a nuclease that can then cleave the RNA target that the RNA binder brings into close proximity. Yeah, so that, I mean, that's that's what we've been doing. I mean, our, our what we, we tried to do very early on is that's just another, another layer of Inforna, the way that we viewed it, is we want to control RNA function by binding structure. Um, degradation is another way to control function by binding structure. So that's really um, how we've thought about it. Um, you know, cause the, cause anti-sense oligos that bind RNAs to cleave them, they bind sequence, but we wanted to figure out a structure specific way to affect RNA quality control. And they seem to benefit from kind of all the things that, you know, Protax benefit from, like you touched on earlier, you don't need to be binding to a site that affects the function. You just need to bind to a site where you can then recruit, uh, a nuclease to it. It's this, um, occupancy versus event driven process it's catalytic um it just makes so much so much sense uh so this is this podcast of course is called back of the napkin so like how did this kind of come to you what was the moment where you said right let's let's make these rna binders heterobifunctional let's start recruiting nucleases how how did that happen Oh, we were thinking about this for a long time. Frankly, when we first developed Inforno, we were doing this. And so we were thinking about this uh, back in, I don't know, 2005, 2003. Um, we struggled for qu quite a while. And so we struggled in this because we tried to recruit different nucleases like Dicer and Drosha that arrive in nucleases that affect microRNA biogenesis, I had a lot of postdoc that worked, you know, worked on this early on. And then, um, it, it was, it was, it was not, you know, it, it was, it was hard. And so I have a tendency to like, I read a lot, but I spend a lot of time reading literature. I like old literature. And so, um, I was reading about other ribonucleases that were being activated or that, that you could get activated, including RNA cell. And so RNA cell, Silverman showed it had an endogenous ligand that bound to it and activated it. And it's a two prime, five prime oligoadenylate. And so I thought, oh, well, what we could do is rather than us making it very complicated by finding novel ligands that bind Dicerandrosha, which are not precedent in literature, we could just synthesize a short two prime, five prime oligoadenylate, append attach that to an RNA binder and have that be a ribotac where the nuclease were recruiting as RNA cell and that worked. So what was the eureka moment? I don't think there was ever a eureka moment. <laughs> um, I, I think we... Uh, <laughs> but there must have been a time when you first saw this worked, right? And the RNA degraded. When I saw it first work, I was like, this didn't work. Do another experiment. <laughs> so, <Yeah. laughs> Do it again. So I'm a skeptic. <laughs> I'm a skeptic. I'm telling you, VCs are coming. You're like, Matt, you're going to make all this money. I'm like, you're full of it. I don't believe you. So you can imagine when I have an experiment that we're trying to get to work for like five years of work. So I'm like, this doesn't work. Come on, do it again. So, so yeah, we did it again. And then we did the controls and then it worked. 
So um, it was more relief <laughs> than uh, um, anything else. So, yeah. So this must have been around 2017, right, when this this happened? Because you first published on it in 2018, I think, um, was when I saw it. So had you been kind of sort of keeping this a secret for a, for a while? Oh, I can't keep anything a secret. <laughs> so look, we had other ways to degrade RNA targets that we published in like 2010, yeah. where we, we actually made a photochemical way to deliver hydroxyl radicals in an Ankavanta chemi paper. Um, we attached bleomycin to compounds to degrade them. We had all flavors of degrading, including enzymes. Uh, I take a long time to write papers, actually, like many years, which is... <laughs> I need to, I need to do better at that. But yeah, it was like 2016, uh, that the, the ribotax stuff was working, but we had worked on degraders, um, you know, before that. So, yeah. And were you, cause this was still fairly early for protax as well. Right. So were you, were you keeping kind of a careful eye of what was going on in that, that space as well? Not really. Yeah. I was more paying attention to like RNAi work. I'm an R- I'm an RNA biophysical person, and so I talk to my protein colleagues that work in the protein world, and they don't. Some of them know know what I do. Yeah, I didn't. I wasn't paying attention to a lot of the protac work. I was looking at it later on when we started to get our sink our teeth into it. But I can't. I can't say that you know we wanted to make an RNA version of protac. We were just trying to. And I'm not, I'm just, I'm just telling you from my perspective, we were just trying to mess with RNA to degrade it. And the heterobifunctional approach, you know, that, that was pretty, pretty attractive, attractive to us. Yeah. Yeah. But, but now we, we, we eat protac, like we, we, we look at, we, we devour the literature associated with it. Yeah. So. Well, it's certainly kind of, um, pricked a few ears and, you know, now we obviously see some others who are kind of working on this, this idea as well. Amgen recently kind of announcing that they're looking at RNA degraders. So again, that must be quite kind of flattering to you to say, well, look, we, we did it first and here it is. And now, um, yeah, every, everyone else starts to look at it as well. There's a story behind that that involves me, but it's complicated. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah it's, it's good. I think you want, at, at the end of the day, um, you want, I mean, you, you want to have as many you want to have your impact be amplified, right? So other people working on it, that's a natural thing that you want to have happen. Um, yeah, so that's that's good. Uh, it would be nice if the ideas got to a human. I mean, that's really where you want it to be and and, if, and help people, right? Yeah, yeah. And I suppose, you know, when Protax kind of first came out, everyone said, look, these are so far out of the rule of five space. Like these are never kind of going to get into the clinic. But, you know, there's so many examples now of Protax in the clinic. That's one of my thing. I'm not that smart, right? And so I don't, I don't go into something thinking this is too stupid to work. Uh, I think there's some advantages trying stuff and seeing what you get, right? So yeah, those molecules are bigger than Lipinski guidelines would say should work, but those things work. I think we we need to. I, I don't want to say think outside of the block, box. That's cliche, but I think we need to get out. I think we all need to get out of our comfort zone and take take chances. I mean, that's how science really advances, right? Yeah, absolutely. So one of the sections I want to talk about, Matt, is uh, that we have in the podcast is is challenges. We've already touched on a few of these and, you know, I'll kind of reference that cell engineering news article again from 2017. Um, 
but they kind of really make it sound like you were pushing against a brick wall in the in the earlier days here so um maybe you can kind of yeah talk me through sort of what challenges you've you faced oh i remember when i interviewed for faculty positions people are like this is a waste of time you can't get anything that specific or work and how do you convince people then how how do you sort of get over this data so so look i think we're all humans are all prone to emotion both especially negative emotion and so i think when you get a review of a grant or you don't get a job that you want it's fine to be upset for a while but it's malpractice as a scientist to not really look at the feedback and so we would get feedback and people would say can't make things specific and then i would say let's test the hypothesis they would say can't make things be bioactive let's test the hypothesis can't get things to work in an animal let's test it in a mouse uh, molecules are too big to get in a cell or in a tissue let's see what we can do and so I think there there has been a lot of skeptics. There's a lot of skeptics still in the whole area. Um, okay, it's always good to have, you know, skeptics. It just, you know, Jerry Joyce, who's who hired me at Scripps, who developed Aptomers. I, I I love that guy very much. He's he's someone I've always you know put in rarefied air for a variety of reasons. But he would tell me, Matt, you know, when you get criticism at a certain level, you're on the right page. Like don't, when you start to get criticized about stuff not working, when you know that it's working, you're, you're doing your job. I, I think my biggest challenge has been myself. Sometimes taking criticism too hard, not getting out of my own way. But I do think at the end of the day, it's what my brother Michael said. If somebody tells you it's not going to, if you tell Matt, it's not going to work. They call me Matthew. If you tell Matthew that he can't do it, he's going to do it. And so it's in some sense, you know, that, that attitude uh-huh. has helped me, right? And I think good scientists are insecure. Michael Jordan is probably the most insecure basketball player in the history of basketball, right? Yeah. And so I think, you know, there's a thin line between insecurity driving you to do better things to challenge yourself and also sort of feeling like you're letting yourself down. I think you always need to push forward and it's really hard to not take criticism personally, but if you're a scientist, you got to unpack what people are saying and distill emotion from actionable hypotheses and then test the hypotheses and, and just do the best you can and be fearless. Know that you have confidence to be able to collect data and then figure out where you're at. And if it things don't work out how you'd like them to do, do, do something else. I think there's some fantastic advice in there. Um, it's something that certainly resonates with me as well. I remember uh, when I was doing my, at school and doing chemistry and I, you know, I messed around a bit at school and I, I did pretty bad in my exams. And my chemistry teacher said to me, look, there's no chance that you can go to university and study uh, and study chemistry. Um, there's, there's kind of no chance of that. And the fact someone told me, you know, you can't do it. I thought, okay, well, uh, I will do it. And then I ended up kind of getting a PhD in biochemistry. So I think there's something very powerful about when kind of people, um, yeah, say you, say you can't do it and you, and you maybe doubt yourself. Yeah, but I, I also think it's healthy to not always be a success. When a certain fraction of what you're doing bombs, you're, you're getting better. You're learning. 
you know, you have to embrace the failure for a lot of what you're doing, because I, I can tell you from my experience, failings where you learn the best lessons, you got to go into things knowing you'll figure it out when you, you, when things don't work out how you want it to do. And a failure is not really a failure. It's just an opportunity to get better and learn lessons. So, so we're kind of coming towards the end of the podcast, um, Matt, but as something different, we have a kind of a fun to finish feature. Uh, so this is, it's a guessing game where you have to tell me uh, which science paper title is real and which isn't. So uh, you might have seen the, the Derek um, Lowe blog recently. Uh, there was a, a study published that uh, said authors with funny paper titles are more likely to get cited. And this kind of brought up a whole uh, collection of funny paper titles. So um, what we're going to do here is I'm going to read out some paper titles, some that we've made up here and some that are actually real publication titles that have appeared in peer-reviewed journals. You just got to tell me which one you think is real and maybe a reason for, for why you think it's that one as well. Sound good? Sure. This is going to be interesting. Yep. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start with, um, with the SARS-CoV-2 one, seeing as it's uh, controlled our lives for the last few years. So uh, number one then, ACE2 Ventura Pet Detective. The role of angiotensin converting enzyme 2 in determining susceptibility of different animals to SARS-CoV-2 infection. That's real. Or COVID-19 cleanup on IL-6. Oh, wow. I'll go with Ace Ventura <laughs> one is real. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's actually not the real one. I, uh, <laughs> I I came up with that one, and someone is very welcome to that title if they want to do the <laughs> do yeah, the study. I guess clean up on aisle six. That would have been too obvious. It's not real, so I'm going for the East Ventura one. Anyway, yeah, clean. Okay, yeah. So yeah, clean up on aisle six. I think that was actually published in 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 Nature. It might have been an editorial or something. Um, okay, we've got an RNA one. So uh, the red hot chili aptamers. A new large Stokes shift fluorogenic aptima for RNA imaging, or um, mir mir on the wall. Who's the most malignant medulloblastoma mir of them all? Oh, the red hot chili one is the real paper. No, <laughs> it's actually the uh, it's actually the other one. That's uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. So the problem is I was going through all Sami Jaffrey's palettes for the spinet, for the aptamers. And I didn't, I didn't think that red hot chili was, was one of the, yeah, I guess that would be wrong. Cause it isn't, isn't, wouldn't be the, I think there is a chili aptama. There, there, there could be a chili, but not a red hot chili. So it's the red hot. That's the one that's in it because he would have used chili to indicate the color of the aptamer. So I'm going against my buddy and his, uh, the language used to describe things. So yeah, it's I'm I'm really getting bad at this. I don't know. I think they're all real. I'm just an optimist. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, next one: Conan the Bacterium or Aquaria Victoria's Secrets. Oh, Quorum the Bacterium has to be the correct one. Co yeah, correct. Correct. Conan the Bacterium. Yeah. That Conan. Yeah. Co yeah. <laughs> yeah. Conan. Well, I'm just, yeah, Conan. I was thinking about Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was Conan the Barbarian. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so that was a real one. And in fact, the other one, the Aquaria Victoria's Secrets, that made it onto BioArchive, but the authors decided against the name when they, when they actually published it. So I, I think they should have kept it. It's a clever title. 
Uh, okay, we've got a couple more here. So I should probably sing this one, but I'm not going to. So should Y stay or should Y go? The evolution of non-recombining sex chromosomes or proline, 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 proline. I'm begging of you, please don't isomerize. The role of proline in cis-trans isomerization in protein misfolding. Oh, I, they both sound real, actually, relative to the other ones. Um, God, I think the proline, oh, Jolene, Jolene, Jolene. Oh, right. Uh, probably the second one is a riff off, uh, is right, is the paper. The second, proline, 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 cis-trans isomerization. I don't know. I'm guessing <laughs> at this stage. Yeah, no, it's actually, it's actually the other one. But yeah, it's pretty hard to kind of... I'm not good at this. Yeah, you can tell we've got some pretty creative uh, people here who are good with good at uh, coming up with titles. Um, all right, and let's do one more then to to finish. So there's uh, liberté, égalité, fromage frais. Uh, the link between hypertension and dairy product consumption in a longitudinal French cohort study, uh, or the Hitchhiker's Guide to Flow Chemistry. Oh, come on. The Hitchhiker's Guide to Flow Chemistry. Isn't Seaburger, isn't that a, uh, isn't Seaburger an author on the second paper? Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, I've right. Read, yeah, I've read that paper. Um, yeah, so see, I was I was wondering if this was going to become papers that I've actually read. So, yeah, sure. I, I thought I'd throw that one in. Uh, I thought you would, uh, yeah, you'd probably get that one. Maybe. <laughs> Although I did, I did, I did think there should be a different title to that paper, but uh, that's we. Peter and I can talk after this. No, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay, Matt. So not bad. T- two out of five is pretty good. There's some not pretty. Really. You know, we've got some pretty creative people here. So it wasn't. It wasn't an easy. You only gave me two selections. I should have at least. Well, I guess it, we could see if I'm average. If you asked me a, a sixth one, but I don't want to test that hypothesis because I'm probably. <laughs> Yeah, no, I would love someone to do that Ace Two Ventura one. That would be um, that would be a great publication. Yeah. Uh, okay, then Matt. So finally, then before we wrap up, um, we ask every guest on the podcast to do a little sketch on the back of a napkin. You don't have to do it now, but um, I've sent this over to you in the post. If you could do something that's personal to you and your scientific journey, whether it's a quote. Uh, structure, a drawing, whatever you like, uh, and sign it, then we can kind of keep that in the archives as a memento of your, uh, your time on the show. I already did it. Uh, that would be, that would be great. Oh, you already did it. Yeah. So I said, science is messy, imperfect, constantly changing, and I love it. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. We'll post a picture of it as well when we, when we release the podcast, but yeah, that's awesome. Uh, and how can people follow you? How can they keep up to date with your, uh, with your research? You're on socials, right? Yeah, you can look at um, our group webpage. I, I go running every morning, and so I have a Twitter account, Disney underscore lab, the underscore. There's other Disney lab tweets I don't understand, uh, or, or Twitter pages. I don't, I don't get this. And so... Yeah, that's the main one. We pub we put links to our papers, but I go running every morning and I try to take a picture of like the sunrise on Jupiter Beach, Juno Beach. I post that every morning. I highly recommend um, yeah following your page for that. It's really refreshing for me to kind of see uh, see these pictures every day. Look gorgeous this morning. The sky looks super yellow. 
Yeah, the, the, the beginning goal of this, which I think started maybe at the beginning of COVID when I started running every morning was the initiator was, can I take the same picture every morning and see how different it is? But I lost discipline to take it from the same place. So that, that piece of art died very quickly, but you can kind of see it. <laughs> yeah, you could probably still put them together in like a kind of a flash show and still have similar effect, I reckon. We'll, we'll put a, uh, a link in the show notes as well, Matt, so people can find that, that easily as well. Sounds awesome. Cool. Thanks so much for being on, Matt. It's been a real pleasure to, uh, to have you on the show. Thanks, Alex. Really appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Back of the Neck. To hear more stories of innovation and discovery just like this, subscribe to Back of the Napkin on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts from. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider sharing it with your friends, colleagues, or lab mates. Back of the Napkin is made possible by Biotechni, where science intersects innovation. Biotechni is a supplier of high quality and innovative tools for life science research, therapeutic manufacturing, clinical diagnostics, and more. They encompass brands like R&D Systems, Tokris Bioscience, Nervous Biologicals, Protein Simple, Advanced Cell Diagnostics, Exosome Diagnostics, and a surgeon to name some. To learn more, you can visit the website at biotechni.com. That's bio-techni.com. Bye.